The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Approximately 40% of firearm transfers take place through means other than through a licensed dealer. So there's great concern that there's a loophole here that needs to be closed. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to a special edition of Annals on Call. This podcast features Dr. Robert McLean, who's the president of the American College of Physicians and the first author of a paper titled Firearm-Related Injury and Death in the United States, A Call to Action from the Nation's Leading Physician and Public Health Professional Organizations. This article was published online by the Annals on August 7, 2019. We hope you will learn a great deal about what our major medical organizations are trying to do about a major public health crisis of firearm violence. Robert, thanks for joining us. This story starts in some ways after the American College of Physicians published their policy paper on reducing firearm injury and death. And in a very famous Twitter storm, the National Rifle Association told us to stay in our lane. And why don't you tell that story a little bit more and how this has stimulated even more cohesion amongst the medical societies? Sure, Bob. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, timely, to say the least, uh, and unfortunately timely since we continue to have some of these uh, mass shootings uh, in our country. The story goes back actually a number of years because for probably 20 years, I believe, the American College of Physicians um, has had policy about firearm-related injuries and mortality being a public health issue. And uh, we have some policy going back, discussing different aspects of that, going back a number of years, which we'll get into. And the most recent policy paper, actually there had been a policy paper and a call to action back in 2015, which I'll get into in a minute. But most recently, back in uh, November of 2018, uh, the ACP published an updated policy position paper on reducing firearm injury and death, because this continues to happen. And soon after that, the National Rifle Association put out a tweet that someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Indicated that half of the articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. And that was the tweet. It turned out that that tweet went out, I think, if I recall, on like a Wednesday. And quite frankly, I think it was that night, that evening, there was, in fact, another mass shooting of a handful of people were killed. I can't remember exactly where. But the timing uh, was remarkable that that happened on that same day. And um, I think within hours of that episode of those two things happening on the same day, it was actually, I believe, a trauma surgeon um, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore tweeted out something saying, this is our lane. You know, kind of how dare you say that this is not something that we need to have concern about? 
And that just led a firestorm. And within hours, there were thousands of responses of physicians. And they started using the hashtag, this is our lane or this is my lane, showing uh, pretty devastating statistics and photos of their own personal experiences in emergency rooms and elsewhere with their uh, experience and exposure to gun violence and gun violence that they'd been treating and that their patients had had. It became quite a movement. Um, And I don't know that the NRA has had such or had had such negative uh, publicity in quite a long time. So it was quite impressive that happened. And it's been it's been ongoing ever since then. Just as a background, I think the 2015 call for action jointly with the American Bar Association, which to me was very dramatic that we had the Bar Association saying that everything that ACP was saying fit the Constitution, that yes. we're not going past the Constitution in our expectations. Exactly. That was really an impressive thing to happen. So similar to this call to action started that time back in 2015. There again, there'd been a a whole host of events that led to this call to action. A number of different physician organizations got together. And in fact, um, I don't know the details, but the American Bar Association signed on to this call to action with six or seven or eight other professional organizations at the time. Some of the same players that we'll get into. And um, it was the first time, I think, that the lawyers and the doctors had stood together on something. And actually, that call to action, which had, I think, as I say, six or eight originally, sometime soon thereafter, a month or maybe a couple months later, there was like another 10 or 20 organizations that signed on as well. So in the end, this call to action had many more signers um, and endorsers than actually there were originally. But nothing's happened since 2015. I mean, things have passed the House, but I think there's an overall tremendous frustration that despite the fact that there are some very common sense gun laws that we think are appropriate and that I think most polls show most people think are appropriate, they haven't been able to get them passed through legislatively. And so we thought and had been thinking for the last six months or so that it was time to have another higher profile call to action to try to put some legislative pressure on. And that was kind of in the works for the last several months, working with different other professional organizations to get them to endorse it and sign on. And then, you know, last week after there were these two mass shootings in one weekend, I think the feeling was, boy, let's let's put this on the fast track. And so a couple little final things were done to get a couple other organizations that hadn't really endorsed it yet to sign on so that, you know, it, it got released. It got finalized. It got released on, uh, what, Wednesday, uh, like five o'clock, I think was when it was actually released publicly. Right. And I think it's worthwhile for uh, our listeners to hear the names of these organizations because these are middle of the road medical organizations uh, that represent a high percentage of all the physicians in the country. We had talked to many physician organizations about this. I think some of the largest and the large groups which actually cover a large majority of physicians in the country. So the first one was the American Medical Association signed on, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the, obviously, the American College of Physicians, us, the American College of Surgeons, and the American Psychiatric Association. So those were the six physician organizations that are part of this initial call to action. And in addition to that, 
the American Public Health Association uh, endorsed as well. So if people see that special article that got published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in the middle of last week, the listed authors are the presidents of each of those organizations. I must say that uh, while I had the honor and responsibility of being kind of the first author, clearly I did not write all this. There are some remarkably skilled and um, dedicated people, especially within the ACP uh, staff office who have been working on this for years and did most of the legwork. Let's go over uh, the recommendations, which I think no one could call extreme recommendations. Um, And as I read it, there were seven of these recommendations. And if you could comment on each of them, I will read the recommendation. Okay. Comprehensive criminal background checks for all firearm purchases, including sales by gun dealers, sales at gun shows, private sales, and transfers between individuals with limited exceptions should be required. Yeah, I mean, I think this this gets in the news. It has been in the news quite a bit. And I think a lot of people don't realize that a you know, statistic which we quote is that approximately 40% of firearm transfers take place through means other than through a licensed dealer. So there's great concern that there's a loophole here that needs to be closed. Um, you know, even though there are some laws out there that would seem to limit access to firearm purchases, it's not enough. And these various loopholes need to be closed. It's clear that background checks help to keep firearms out of the hands of individuals at risk of using them to harm themselves or others. But we need to make sure that we have put all laws in place to make sure that background checks are occurring and the appropriate avenues of purchase are what's happening. Laws need to be passed for those. And as I read the polls, this this clearly is something that the great majority of uh citizens of the U.S. are strongly in favor of. Yes, I think so. Okay, research. Research uh, is always worthwhile. Uh, I know the American College of Physicians likes to speak from an evidence background, as do the other organizations. Research should help us better understand the causes and consequences of firearm-related injury and death and to identify, test, and implement strategies to reduce these events is important. Going back, uh, I can't remember exactly how long, but there seems to be, um, there's clearly bipartisan agreement that there should not be prohibitions on the CDC's ability to fund such research. But I believe there currently is a limitation in place. And so we feel, and I think most people feel, that there needs to be research into what works and what doesn't work in terms of reducing firearm injury and mortality. And uh, research clearly needs to help inform our efforts to reduce this. And that research has actually really been pretty minimal in the last two decades when these limitations on what the CDC could fund came into effect. And so we feel strongly about that. So the third recommendation is on intimate partner violence. Offenders who have been adjudicated guilty of a crime of violence against a family member or intimate partner including dating partners, cohabitants, stalkers, and those who victimize a family member other than a partner or child, should be reported to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System and be prohibited from purchasing or possessing firearms. Right. So currently, federal law um, restricts firearm purchases by individuals 
um, in who've been convicted of domestic violence related to current or former spouses. It doesn't get into issues about whether there's been evidence or, or history of violence with dating partners, even though apparently almost half of intimate partner cases involved dating partners and not spouses. So I think there's some subtle nuance of the law here. It only applies to spouses or former spouses and not other relationships. Uh, and that's where I think we need to expand that because we know that it's any domestic situation frequently or too frequently is the uh, scenario where some of this gun, uh, gun violence occurs. Safe storage is essential to reducing the risk of unintentional or intentional injuries or deaths from firearms, particularly in homes with children, adolescents, people with dementia, people with substance abuse disorders, and a small subset of people with serious mental illnesses that are associated with greater risk of harming themselves and or others. This gets a little tricky in the sense that people feel like they shouldn't be held responsible for how they store their firearm. But the, the reality is that a large number of unintentional firearm fatalities occur in situations where firearms are stored loaded or not protected from, from other people from accessing them, especially children, adolescents, or people potentially with dementia. So our organizations, through this call to action, support child access prevention laws that hold accountable firearm owners who negligently store firearms in circumstances where minors could or do gain access to them. So there are laws that kind of describe all this, um, but it's really important that if someone is going to be a firearm owner, and we do not call for the banning of all firearms, this is not something that people should interpret as being against you know, the Second Amendment. Hunting rifles and other, you know, kind of smaller guns that people really feel like they need for for uh, self-defense and things, we're not banning that. It's the mass killing machines, and it's making sure that whatever firearms people have, the appropriate types of firearms are stored safely so that people do not actually have the opportunity to harm themselves inappropriately. The next one is on mental health and perhaps the most controversial. The organizations represented in this article support improved access to mental health care, and caution against broadly including all individuals with a mental health or substance abuse disorder in a category of individuals prohibited from purchasing firearms. Yeah, I think in, in some of the press, um, there have been kind of claims that a lot of the firearm injuries, or the, especially the mass killing uh, things that we've seen, are done by people with, quote, mental illness. Um, I think there are clear situations where that has been the case. We do not want to indicate that uh, just because someone has a mental illness, whether it be anxiety, depression, or something else, that that necessarily means that they are violent or have a predisposition toward violence because the great majority of those with mental illness do not. However, screening, access, and treatment for mental health disorders plays a critical role in reducing the risks for interpersonal violence, the, these kinds of things, as well as self-harm. And so as we're looking at the broader perspective of public health, the, the health of our patients, we have to make sure that people who have mental health problems of any sort have adequate access and identification for treatments that they need, because in fact, that will reduce the risk of suicide, um, and clearly, a lot of suicides do, in fact, occur with firearms. Um, so that's where this is coming from. 
So this is a very important one, extreme risk protection orders. And these are laws which allow families and law enforcement to petition a judge to temporarily remove firearms from individuals at imminent risk for using them to harm themselves or others. This paper says they should be enacted in a manner consistent with due process. Yes, yeah, so there are apparently several states that have enacted laws like this that seem to be quite reasonable and effective. And the issue here is there are situations where family members and law enforcement might have the need to intervene when there are warning signs. So this is before there's actual evidence that the person has done something or is going to be doing something bad. But there are temporary crises that might occur, especially in domestic situations, where um, there are concerns about imminent threat of a person a threat to themselves in terms of suicide risk or threat to others, that there needs to be the ability for law enforcement agencies, especially to intervene in these extreme risk situations. So there are laws that nuance how to state that, and they seem to be reasonable and effective. Next, physicians can and must be able to advise their patients on issues that affect their health, including counseling at-risk patients about mitigating the risks associated with firearms in the home and firearm safety. This gets at not just the safety, uh, public health safety around firearms, but also the, the, at the physician-patient relationship and the sacrosanct relationship that that is and the need to ensure that physicians and patients can have private conversations in the exam room that are not subject to government interference that you can or cannot talk about certain things it is critical that physicians have the ability to counsel patients and bring up different topics, whether gun violence or other things that might be sensitive, but which are critically important to be able to counsel patients on, on their health risks and having guns in the home, having being able to ask about, not only do you have guns, do you have guns that are, you know, uh, that are in safe places, unloaded, all those kinds of things. It's critical that physicians be allowed to speak freely to their patients without fear of liability or penalty. There were states that were trying to pass such gag laws uh, as of a couple years ago. I think in many situations, there's been strong pushback to not have those happen. I'm not, I can't remember offhand if any states have them now, but it's been a strong push to not have them, and we continue to support that. Gag rules cannot be accepted. And finally, a common sense approach to reducing casualties in mass shooting situations must effectively address high-capacity magazines and firearms with features designed to increase their rapid and extended killing capacity. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of people see and are greatly concerned that these rapid fire guns are of great concern. And while though handguns are the most common type of firearm implicated in different injuries and death, the use of these features in different big guns that we see on the news the most with high, with high killing capacity during mass violence is of great concern. And these weapons need to be the subject of special scrutiny and special regulations to, to decrease the access of them to people who don't need those kinds of weapons. It's pretty simple, and I think many gun owners or most gun owners in various surveys clearly agree that these kinds of assault rifles should not be accessible. Most gun owners in this country are hunters and using those kinds of guns, which are not in this category and would not be affected. And most of that, most Americans, I think, by polls show, would seem to agree that there is no reason for these military-style weapons 
to be accessible to anybody who's not in the military doing military exercises. Common sense stuff. There's just yeah. It's hard to argue with any of those. And I think that most of the legislation that I'm aware of that's passed the, the House of Representatives touches on a number of these different items. And it's very frustrating that they're sitting waiting for the Senate to take them up. And I think that's where a lot of the, the pressure is publicly now for people who are following this in the media. And I think that's where we're hoping that this call to action can really take some of those pieces of legislation and, and push them over the finish line. Now, obviously, they would then need to be signed into law by the president, although different comments that, that he has made publicly would suggest that he seems to support at least a couple of these specific items and those laws. So we'll have to see what happens. But the pressure needs to be put on in every way that we can do it. As a long-term member of the American College of Physicians, and one who is formally in the leadership, I could not be any more proud of uh, the American College Physicians for taking a leadership role and working with so many other uh, medical organizations. So I personally want to thank you, Robert, and wonder if there's anything else uh, that we need to say about this issue, which uh, haunts many of us. Uh, I, I know talking to friends and family, uh, th this issue uh, is consistently on people's mind. I think at this point, uh, most people seem to agree with most of what these different bills that have passed the House state, the, the ACP, um, even before uh, this call to action, uh, sent out a, a letter to the leaders of the, uh, of, the, of the Senate and asked once again, please, we need this legislation to be taken up and you know considered in the Senate. I think that when people wonder what can they do, it's, it's really probably a matter of, of contact their senator. You know, senators respond to their constituents uh, in general, it seems. And I think they need to hear from as many people as possible that the Senate needs to get off their butt and actually do something. There's, a, there's another hashtag that has come out in the last week or so called do something or do something now. I think a lot of people are just sick and tired of this. It's, it, there's no excuse for the U.S. to have such an incredibly high rate of gun violence compared to other nations in the world. Um, it's just, it's, it's unacceptable. It's a public health crisis. That's why we're addressing it. It needs to be looked at that way. Uh, it's not just the people who individually have guns and th their families. It's, uh, it's concern and fear that people have uh, being out in public places. Who, who knows what could happen? It's, it's really quite frightening. I think that it, it has contributed to a lot of anxiety people have, people who weren't otherwise anxious, you know, developing a greater anxiety about that, fear for themselves, fear for family members when they're out in public places. It's just, it's, you just never know when the next one's going to happen. And it's, um, it's something that is, that is avoidable. And that's kind of what's such a tragedy about it all. A lot of innocent lives have been lost, something like 255 so far this year, which is more than the number of days in the year. So more than one per day in mass killings you know, more than two or three. So it's it's really, it's sad. It's something that we need to pressure our legislators to get something done on. Robert, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. It's a sobering subject and an important subject. Well, thank you for taking this up in such a timely fashion, just, you know, a week after we uh, had this call to action go out last week. And I, I look forward to people being able to hear more detail about it and know that they can access the paper and a bit more of the discussion behind the scenes, you know, on the in the annals of internal medicine paper, which is, I think, open to the public on the website. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. I hope you have listened and absorbed the 
great explanation uh, that Dr. McLean has given for actions that are very modest and hopefully would be effective in decreasing firearm violence. Several things stand out for me. First is the unnecessary rapid-fire firearms that lead to mass shootings. I cannot come up with a rationale for having these. The next is for firearm safety in the home. Every time I read an article about a child accidentally being killed by a firearm in the home, I shudder. I hope that this podcast has been informative and you will support your medical organizations in their quest to decrease firearm-related injury and death. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.